If you've been with us over the last few Sunday mornings, we've been spending some time with Jesus. Last Sunday morning, we went from the Palm Sunday experience walking into Jerusalem with all the array that went with that to a very quiet, intimate setting with Mary in a room called Simon's house. She walked into the room that night, unbeknownst to Jesus, probably to everyone else in the room, and broke a vial of oil, extremely expensive, and poured it all over him. Every time I hear that story and think about that moment, I've often wondered if she knew what she had done that night. Not only that moment of expression, not only that moment of adoration, but that moment of preparation. Before they buried anyone in Old Testament days, they anointed them with oil. As a matter of fact, Jesus was taken down from the cross so fast without a lot of people around that they came back Sunday morning, if you remember the story, to do that very thing with oil and spices to prepare the body for what they believed would be eternal rest, only to find, obviously, the resurrection. And I've often wondered, as Mary began to walk through the sequence of those last couple of days in her life and then walking through the experience that you and I will enjoy this particular weekend, if she remembered that particular night and as she walked to the tomb that day and saw the empty tomb, if a smile came over her face as she recognized she did that night not only something out of adoration for that moment and an expression of her love, but in preparation for what was about to take place. So often in life we respond to the moment only to find that it has enormous impact, either for the next day or for the future, for the people around. And that's what she did that night. As that scene began to unfold, the next couple of days, probably for Jesus, went by fairly quickly. He told his disciples to go and prepare for the Passover meal. Now, we call it the Last Supper. They didn't. For them, it was the Passover meal. It was something they had celebrated as Jews for a number of years, for generations. Ever since they came out of Egypt, they had been sharing this particular meal as a reminder of God's amazing deliverance out of bondage into life. And so he said to them, I want you to go to a particular place and find a man carrying a pitcher of water. I'm sure you already know why that was so unusual and why it was not hard to find because men didn't do that. And so that was a sign for them that that would be the one that Jesus had already had arrangements with. And they would go to that upper room and prepare that meal. No thousand dollar plate with a politician. This was a meal with the Son of God. They had no idea that night that it would be the last moments. Even though he had predicted it. Even though he had talked about it. Even though he had warned them. What was it out about to take place, I really don't think they fully grasped what was taking place that night. John, interestingly enough, paints one of the most amazing portraits of that particular event. Each author, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, look at all of this from a different vantage point. John, the one whom Jesus loved, calling himself the beloved disciple, wrote about every detail that he possibly could that particular night, a little bit more than anyone else did. The only one that mentions the washing of the disciples' feet. To John, that stood out. Not Matthew, the tax collector, or Luke, the historian, or Mark, who would obviously write about it later, hearing about the events that took place, but John, being one of those, was the only one that wrote about that moment. 
Now, he writes it to us as a narrative. But I have to believe when he's writing it out, he's almost speaking, he washed our feet. The Son of God washed my feet. What fascinates me about that, with all, as I said Sunday morning, going on in Jesus' mind, he uses that moment as a moment of love, tenderness, and teaching. He said, I want you to do the same. I, I want you to really understand what I'm about to do tonight. They went from that moment to what we're about to share in a few moments to what we call this communion time as he took the bread and the cup. And if you read all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one of them starts with sharing the cup first and passing it around and then the bread, and then go back where it says after supper he took a cup and passed it around again and talked about the new covenant in his blood. During this meal, walking from that moment of tenderness with washing the disciples' feet, he talks about the betrayal. Talk about a leap in a moment of conversations as he walks from this incredibly tender moment of washing the feet of these men that he had spent three years with and now talking about one of them turning their back on him and another one betraying him. I've often wondered how they processed that that night. I mean, how do you walk from that moment of tenderness to this moment of betrayal? Jesus tells them exactly what's going to take place so they'll never be surprised and never wonder about what is about to unfold. Somewhere in that night, he shares with them John 14 to 17. I hope you've read it a hundred times. It's one of the most powerful messages Jesus shared. Matter of fact, it's the longest message he has shared since the beginning of his ministry with the Sermon on the Mount. At the beginning of his ministry, he lays the foundation for what he's about to do. He talks to them about the kingdom of God and what it's going to be like and gives to us what we know as the Beatitudes. And then he shares in those first few chapters of Matthew an incredibly powerful sermon as he sets the stage for his ministry. And now at the end of his ministry here on earth, he shares with them John 14, 15, 16, and 17, specifically those three. Again, John remembers it. We've quoted it a thousand times probably through the years. In my father's house are many rooms, many mansions in the King James Version. I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare that place for you and I'm going to return and take you unto myself. And he gives them in that middle of uncertainty in their lives with all that he predicted about what was about to take place in this betrayal moment that they just experienced and this incredible moment of adoration in washing their feet. He talks to them about the future. I'm going to come back and get you. He says, I need you to remember that I'm not leaving you alone. I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. I won't leave you as orphans. My wife's mother died at a very early age in our married life and certainly in her life at 57. Her father died a number of years ago while we had been here as pastor, probably close to his 80s. It was at that moment that my wife, as the eldest, realized that both of her parents, at her young age, from my vantage point young, were gone. She went to the funeral home that night, and there was laying on the casket her father's Bible. And of all places that the funeral director just would have wonderfully opened to make sure that it laid open well, 
He laid open John 14, 15, and 16. And these words stood out. I will not leave you as orphans. She realized at that moment that theoretically she was an orphan in both of her parents being gone. And then this amazing promise at that very second, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll send you my spirit. He says, you've got to stay connected to me though. You'll never be able to do what I ask you to accomplish on your own, so you have to stay connected to me. I'm the vine, you're the branches, but you've got to stay with your roots in the soil. You've got to stay connected to me. And then John 17, one of the most amazing prayers in all of Scripture. We've often all of our lives, depending again on our background, if we've grown up, quoted the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. One of the most powerful prayers in Scripture with more meaning than I think we've ever really appreciated. In those few words that are stated in that particular moment when the disciples said, would you teach us how to pray? He shares with them some incredible truth in that moment. But John 17, to me, is the Lord's Prayer. What's fascinating about that prayer is how he begins. And he says, Father, I have completed everything you have sent me here to do. When you stop for a moment and look at that particular phrase, you have to walk back in his ministry for just a moment. I've completed everything you sent me here to do. He disappointed his family. Matter of fact, in some cases, they thought he had lost his mind. He disappointed the people of Nazareth where he grew up When he revealed himself as to who he was, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. He disappointed the crowds because everywhere he went, they wanted something from him and he couldn't meet or address all of their needs. He disappointed his disciples. Some betrayed him. Some denied him. He disappointed the religious rulers of the day. He disappointed almost every single person he came in contact with in that particular environment as you walk through all those sections of scripture. And yet he ends by saying, but I've done everything you've asked me to do. I thought, how freeing. 37 years of ministry, I have disappointed people endlessly in a number of ways. My goal has always been I've done what you have asked me to do. And he begins that prayer that way, and then he moves into a prayer for the disciples. Father, keep them together. These next few days and moments are going to be incredible. It'll take its toll on them. Would you please keep them together? And then he not only prays for them, but he prays for us. Those who come to you, Father, because of their message. In that whole priestly prayer, he spends very little time praying for himself. I would have spent all night praying for myself, knowing what I was about to go through. But he prayed for them that God would be glorified in all that he did, And he prayed for us. Fascinated by that. And then this testament tells us that he walked across the Kinron Valley to the Mount of Olives to one only reference of the Garden of Gethsemane. A very quiet, solemn place. Takes his disciples with him. Judas had already left to betray him. And then in that wonderful moment, he takes just the three, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, takes them a little further and 
he sits them there and says, will you just stay for a little while and pray for me? And then he goes off to a place and prays on, him, on his own. Many of the portraits that many of us may have in our home are portraits of that particular moment of him in the Mount of Olives praying beside many of our portraits a rock with huge sweat running down his face. Only one version says great drops of blood. One translator says that the anxiety and anxiousness of the moment was so intense that the sweat was mingled with what was going on inside of him and it's what it appeared to be as they were enormous passionate drops flowing across the sand that day. And then that phrase, Father, if there be any other way. Revelation talks about a moment of silence in heaven. As a matter of fact, it said it's a a span of about a half an hour there was silence in heaven. I've got to honestly believe at that moment, before that statement was finished, there was an incredible pause in all of heaven. Is there any other way? Every angel, the archangels, God himself, the father from heaven, had to look down and say, this is what we have been planning since the beginning of time. And then it was almost as if that moment of understanding of all the conversations they'd had forever, there is no other way. Thy will be done. And this is what I'll do. In all the years of ministry, I still have a hard time watching scenes like The Passion. Probably more intense than any other movie had ever been made about the intensity of these next few hours in the life of Jesus. Of course, the betrayal and the denial and all that went with that, but then the beatings and the scourgings and unbelievable emotions. And he went through it all. Never once wavering, never once backing off, continued to do it. The humiliation, the beatings, and then the crucifixion. Two of the characters we very seldom ever talk about. One is Barabbas and the other the centurion. Did you ever wonder what went through Barabbas' mind after everything unfolded that night? I mean, one moment he's on death row and another moment he's free. And a person who he had never seen took his place. Didn't deserve it. Did nothing to earn it. Received the offer and took it. We're more like him than we would ever care to admit. Very few of us tonight would ever say, that's me. I deserve to die. I should have died. Most of us would assume that we're fairly good individuals. Never really done much wrong. We've obeyed as many of the commandments as we could. And then in the back of our mind, we hear the words of Jesus and the words of the Apostle Paul. And the Old Testament writer said, all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us have done our own thing and gone our own way. We hear Paul reminding us that every single one of us have sinned. And then he goes on in the sixth chapter to remind us that the wages of that sin is death. And so whether we would ever admit that we were like Barnabas, Barabbas or not, we were. We deserve to die because of the price of our sin. 
And yet someone we'd never met, someone we'd never seen, took our place and died on our behalf. I doubt if Barabbas ever looked back. I doubt if he probably thought much about the moment. Very little ever is said about him. But you and I were in a similar state, and I hope tonight when we look back, we recognize what amazing grace we've received and what an unbelievable gift we've been given. That someone we've never known and only heard about and only read about in Scripture took our place, died on the cross, and set us free. So that when we receive him as Savior, we too can have this freedom of becoming the children of God. The second individual that stands out in the scene that I see painted on Golgotha is the centurion. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. Someone has said he received a dictionary full. In just watching the Son of God die, he came to the conclusion this is the Son of God. Never saw one miracle, never saw one healing, probably had never met him, only had heard about him. But just simply watching him die, he realized and recognized this is the Son of God. Many people that you and I have come across wanted proof, they want to know, not sure if they believe, they're not sure if it's true, they're not sure if they want to commit to that. This one man who only saw him die, who never saw any other proof that God was who he said he was, believed at that moment that he was the Son of God. Tonight, you and I have the opportunity to remember again. To, like that man, realize what Jesus did. Tonight, we have the opportunity to celebrate communion. And we specifically chose to do it on Good Friday night as opposed to what we normally do on Sunday morning. As we celebrate it tonight, there may be a number of thoughts that run through our mind. And we're going to give you some wonderful moments musically to allow that to happen. Maybe you are like Mary. Clearly recognize what Jesus did for you. And so in these moments of communion and just a few moments of reflection instrumentally, you're just going to thank him. I love being with you. I love being around you. When Martha was so busy, Mary wanted to spend some time just simply being with Jesus. And then, of course, that night when she comes into that setting and anoints him with the oil. And maybe for you tonight, it's just simply a reminder of what Jesus did for you, how much you love and adore him, and you want to thank him in those wonderful moments of that. If you're really, really honest and very introspective, you may find yourself, even though you wouldn't want to admit it out loud, a little like Peter every once in a while, who, when he was around believers, I'll follow you to the end. I will never leave you. I'll not forsake you. I will go with you until he's with non-believers. And he says, I never even knew the man. And maybe there are times in your life where Around other believers, there was this incredible affirmation of your relationship with Jesus, but then you're in your other world that many of you are in, 
And you don't always acknowledge that you are a follower of Christ. And so tonight, you just want to, in those moments, say, I I have a hard time admitting this, but there have been many times that have been like, Peter, Lord, and I want to ask your forgiveness. Maybe it's Barabbas. You recognize you had zero hope, none in this world. And someone you never knew and never had met took your place and you want to acknowledge and recognize and never forget your freedom. Or maybe like the centurion, never knowing much about Christianity or the faith, not knowing a whole lot about Jesus, but knowing on this Easter weekend I want to be in church, I want to go to a church service. And you recognize that he really is the Son of God. And tonight maybe is the night where you say, for the first time in my life, I acknowledge that. He really is the Son of God. And he took my place. And tonight you have the opportunity to share as well. When Paul describes the upper room experience in 1 Corinthians 11, he said we ought not to partake of it if we don't know Christ. If we don't know him as Lord and Savior. And we always want to give you the opportunity as often as we can when we celebrate communion to receive him as Savior tonight. It's a matter of acknowledging you're a sinner in need of a Savior and he really is a son of God. And you receive him into your life and you say, I've not done too well at running my life. I want to turn it over to you and you give it to him tonight. And so when the elements are passed, you have the opportunity to take the bread and take the cup. He said, don't do it in an unworthy manner. If you really don't understand what this is all about, you ought not to do it. But when you do, you can't wait to do it. You can't wait to hold that bread in your hand or that cup in your hand because you know what he did. And you want to acknowledge that tonight. And so if you've never received Christ as Savior, you can do it tonight. Before we pass it out, we'd love to talk to you afterwards talk to you about what this is all about and give you the opportunity to understand this incredible gift called salvation and Christianity. And tonight as we share these elements, we want you to take the time to do that. You're going to hear an instrumental in a moment by his wounds. And while that's being played, we just want you to reflect. Take one of the positions or identify with one of the people or just your own experience with Jesus and spend some time in reflection. Then as all the blood is being shared, the communion stores will just automatically, as soon as you hear that song begin, will automatically come down and begin to distribute communion. You don't have to wait for instructions or anyone to tell you. Just stand up where you are if you're a communion store and come and begin to pass the elements out. If you're visiting us tonight, you'll notice that the bread and the cup are in one tray. And so what we do here is we kind of help each other out and hold us so the person beside you can partake and everyone has the opportunity to do that. And then as Justin leads us into amazing grace, again without instructions, you partake. Reflection, everyone receives, and then during amazing grace, eat the bread and drink the cup while we worship together. Father, I don't know how we could ever in a thousand years express to you how grateful we are for what you've done for us. But tonight in these few moments as we reflect on who we are and what you've done and what we have now because of that, may this experience 
be an incredible opportunity for us to express again our gratitude. We may have done it another time. We may have done it a thousand times. Help it to never lose its power and wonder as you that particular night took bread and blessed it and said, this is my body given for you. This is where you receive life. This is my cup. It's a representation of the blood that was shed so that you could have forgiveness of your sins. And so tonight as we hold these elements and then eventually partake of them, may again we remember you. Because what you've said in all of this, do please remember me. I've often wondered how we could ever forget. And so help us to remember you.